Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Linda Hogan, Suzanne Antonetta, Honor Moore, and Lydia Yuknovich. You will now hear Mary Rockcastle provide introductions. everyone. We're all here. Hello and welcome to our 16th anniversary reading of the annual Meridella Soar essay for Waterstone Review. When we began the review in 1998, our aim was to create a national literary journal that would be a work of art inside and out. We wanted to publish writing that is distinctive, intelligent, daring in form, voice, and or style, writing that says something meaningful about the human condition in an artful and compelling way. Some of our early advisory board members cautioned us about claiming too strong a Midwestern connection, not wanting us to be branded a provincial magazine. God forbid. While we've always had a national reach, we have never shied away from honoring what we call in our mission statement the artistic excellence of a proud Midwestern literary tradition. One of the ways we did this was to create an essay to pay homage to the spirit of Meridella Soar, journalist, fiction writer, essayist, poet, and biographer, whose writings over 50 years depicted the lives of working-class women and men the children they cared for, and the land they inhabited. Born in Murray, Iowa in 1900, Meridell lived in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Illinois, New York, and Minnesota. In her work, she paid witness to the central economic, political, ecological, and social realities of the century. She exemplified a Midwestern tradition of radical thought and action. She was a listener learning early to write down what people were saying. She carried that listening ear into her writing life and throughout her writing life, grounding her work in the stories and experiences of working people, the poor, the disenfranchised, and the dispossessed. The writers, she wrote, must go all the way with full belief into the darkness. We wanted this vision to serve as an inspiration to the writer of the annual essay. With generous funding from Margaret Wordle, an alum of our Master of Arts and Liberal Studies program, we've been able to solicit the essay each year from a writer whose work we admire. The first Meridella Soar essay was published in our second issue in the fall of 1999. We are thrilled to have the writer of that first essay, Linda Hogan, with us today. Linda is filling in for Cheryl Strayed, who had to withdraw because of family commitments back in Portland. We also have Suzanne Antonetta to my left, writer of the essay in our fall 2008 issue, Honor Moore to her left, writer of the essay in our 2010 issue, and Lydia Yuknovich, writer of our 2011 essay. A number of other Meridella Soar essayists are with us at the conference, We're in too many events to participate. Patricia Hampel, Toy Derricotte, Eula Biss, 
but they send their regards. <laughs> Other essayists have included Judith Ortiz Kofer, Ivan Boland, Elizabeth Alexander, Scott Russell Sanders, the late Carol Bly, John Edgar Wideman, Terry Tempest Williams, and Brian Dahl. Each of the four essayists here today will read an excerpt from her essay. I will introduce each of the four writers, and they will go in the order in which I introduce them. Linda Hogan is a highly accomplished writer of poetry, fiction, and essays. She is the former writer-in-residence for the Chickasaw Nation and Professor Emerita from the University of Colorado. Her awards include fellowships from the National Endowment from the Arts, the Guggenheim Foundation, the Lannan Foundation, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Native Writers Circle of the Americas, an Oklahoma Book Award, a Colorado Book Award, and many others. Her novel, Mean Spirit, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her most recent book, which is here at the conference, Dark, Sweet, New and Selected Poems, is being published by Coffeehouse Press. She will be reading from her essay, Bones and Other Precious Gems. Suzanne Antonetta, also known as the poet Suzanne Paola, I I'm love that. Consolidating my name. Suzanne Paola Antonetta. Yep, okay, is the award-winning author of three books of creative nonfiction: "Make Me a Mother," a memoir; "A Mind Apart: Travels in a Neurodiverse World," and "Body Toxic," as well as two collections of poetry. Her collection Bardo received the Brittenham Prize in Poetry. Suzanne co-authored with Brenda Miller the nonfiction writing handbook and textbook Tell It Slant, Creating, Refining, and Publishing Creative Nonfiction. She is currently teaching at Western Washington University and in the low residency MFA program located at City University in Hong Kong, China. She has just taken on the editor's reins of Bellingham Review from Brenda Miller. She will be reading from her essay, Lazarus. Honor Moore is an accomplished poet, memoirist, nonfiction writer, and playwright. She has published three collections of poetry and is the editor of Poems from the Women's Movement and Amy Lowell, Selected Poems. She is the co-editor of The Stray Dog Cabaret, a book of Russian poems translated by Paul Schmidt. Her memoir, The Bishop's Daughter, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and named an editor's choice by the New York Times. She has also written a biography entitled The White Blackbird, A Life of the Painter, Margaret Sargent by her granddaughter. She is on the faculty of the graduate writing program at the New School in New York City, and she will be reading from her essay, A Window at Civitella. Lydia Yuknovich is the author of two novels, the Small Backs of Children, a novel just out from Harper Books, and Dora, a headcase, as well as several collections of short fiction, including Real to Real, R-E-A-L to R-E-E-L. Her memoir, The Chronology of Water, was a finalist for the Penn Center Creative Nonfiction Award and won an Oregon Book Award Reader's Choice. Also won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association Award and made many best books lists. She has also published a book of criticism, Allegories of Violence. She is the founder of the magazine Two Girls Review and co-editor of Northwest Edge Deviant Fiction, 
With her husband, she created Chiasmus Press and Chiasmus Productions. She teaches writing literature, film, and women's studies in Oregon. She will be reading from her essay, The Work of Art. Thank you for coming. We're really excited to hear these amazing writers read from their essays, and we're going to start with Linda Hogan. show you my 1983 t-shirt, Maradell Lassure in the center, Pete Seeger, and Ronnie Gilbert. I, I knew Maradell. We traveled together. Um, one time we, she wanted to get, go to a cemetery where many children were conceived at night. <laughs> she once said things, she always said great things. One was survival is a form of resistance. And uh, she was in the 1980, 1980, she was at the Black Hills Survival Gathering. I took Tilly Olson to be with Meridale and spent time, and they were talking about how, when they were young, in the first writers' union, they were so intimidated by each other because they each thought the other one was a better communist than they were. <laughs> and Tilly even had a communist uniform, and Meridale didn't, so she really felt bad. <laughs> and that was at the first Writers' Union in New York, which was revived for a time in 1981, and I was at that one. I didn't know we were reading from the essays. In fact, I wasn't really knowing that I was on the panel. Mary just told me I was on the panel and then told me what I was reading. So sometimes you just go with the flow because people tell you, and you just go ahead and do it. And it seems like some other people didn't, and I guess I should have learned my lessons, but I'm glad to be here, and I'm grateful for this panel and for the memories of Meridel and her great sense of humor and her wonderful writing, which her publisher now, John Crawford, I just saw him this morning before he had to leave. He's been very ill, so if you know him, send him <coughs> letters, cards, gifts, love. He did the girl. And Florence Howe, Feminist Press, redid the collected works or selected works. And Meridel was just an incredible, all the way around, not Midwestern writer, but everything writer. Studied at the Helen Keller University when Helen Keller started the university. Meridel's parents taught there. She was in New York with Emma Goldman and Eugene Debs. She had an amazing life and a library of her journals, which was so big that I couldn't walk through, the, through it at, because she had kept journals for long over 50 years of her writing. I mean, it was like the whole history of America. And also, I heard that the father of Rachel was listed in one of them, but it's still a secret, so they took it out. <laughs> I don't know who he was. And one time... She was smoking a black cigarette and drinking tequila at the age of 80-something. And we were at a dance, and there was a famous, very famous writer that put his forehead against mine, and she came over and said, stay away from him, he's the devil. <laughs> he said he was trying to read my brain, but, you know. Back in those days, we were all young, and she was afraid that I was going to be taken away. I was swept off my feet. But I had a bunch of kids at home, and now I have a bunch of grandkids. And 
I'm supposed to read something, and I wasn't sure that it was, I didn't know it was from this essay, so I just went through very quickly trying to figure out what I could read from here. But I really wanted to just talk about Meridel because I, love, I loved her, and she wrote to me, and I have her clo- some of her clothes and one of her scarves and some wheat bills she had from Guatemala, and I put them over the backs of my chairs because they're, I don't want to wear them. They're too fragile now. They're over 100. They're probably 150 years old. And the, the embroidery on them is beautiful, so I want it to show, but I don't want it to be messed with. So let me read just this one section. The veneration of body and bones is common to all humanity, not just the tribal. We have to think of the Egyptians and their methods of preserving the bodies of their royalty. The calcium phosphate by which a person stands is the closest thing the body has to eternity. In that respect, the soul and the bones are not so different from one another. Both are thought to be eternal, or nearly so. Elephant bones. The care for bones is not only common to most of humanity, those without that marvelous network at the base of the brain, but to other species as well. Elephant researcher Cynthia Moss has written about how elephants care for the bones of their dead. It is haunting and touching, she says. The elephants return to the bones sometimes lifting them and turning them with their feet and trunks. Traveling elephants, Moss observed, detour from their route in order to visit the bones of their dead. They return and touch their kin time and again, resting against the skull bones of child or mother. The son of one matriarch remained behind, moving his mother's bones, placing his trunk mournfully on her skull and jaw each time he passed by. Another time, Moss chanced to see a burial ritual in which the elephants were putting earth on the body, going away and returning with palm fronds to cover it. They had begun to bury in this poignant manner with purpose, until they were interrupted by the plane that carried ivory seekers. Travels to the end of the world. In our more recent times, there are ultrasounds, x-rays, and MRIs that reach into the human body to diagnose. But traditional healers, in times both old and new, know the terrain, not only of a sick person, but of many worlds. Seeing inside the body with a vision unknown to the rest of us, seeing and reading the bones, sorting through the anatomy, they determine the source of illness, not in a careless manner as Western doctors once did in the past when they operated on merely a kind of hope, cutting people open, and this is true, and unwittingly rearranging their organs with not knowing what belonged where. Nor are traditional aboriginal healers spiritually careless as those who count on the patient's belief and faith to heal themselves, like a preacher who blamed a deaf girl I knew as a child 
for her own lack of hearing because she, quote, didn't have enough faith, unquote. What the old ones knew is evidenced in the rock paintings of humans with bones made visible and some surviving written records. The Egyptians had medical knowledge of the circulation system over a thousand years before this knowledge was learned by Western medicine. The Mayans also had medical knowledge, but it was burned by the Spanish, except for one or two collections. The hidden inside, as with art and love, is revealed in these cultures. The ancient ones knew the inside body, viscera, and recorded it in their medical histories. A medical indigenous healer searches the universe of the ocean for stolen souls, one gone astray. They travel across the threshold of body and skin to enter another world because there are other journeys than the inward ones. The sojourner may travel into the sky world or to the underworld or beneath the ocean to the Eskimo goddess who lives in the sea or he enters a mountain of 40 rivers and mineral medicines as with the Cree and Anishinaabe of Canada. As with outward journeys, the journey to the bones, the organs, the interior is one a healer must take in order to seek a cure, as if following illness back to its origins and remembering the body history as a kind of map or story. And here I am going to skip. Sometimes the spirit of the ill is found and returned to the body. Sometimes, even with all the temptations to return on earth, it is not. In old China, it was the river god that was entreated, and so was the soul of the departing. The river god is said to live in a fish-scale house in the water, and it is there that the healer goes on a journey in order to retrieve the soul of a sick person whose life energy has wandered away. Quote, there is a man on earth below who I would help. His soul has left him. O soul, says the God's helper, why have you gone to the four far corners of the earth? In the east you cannot abide. There are giants there a thousand fathoms tall. In the south you cannot stay. There the people have tattooed faces and blackened teeth. They sacrifice the flesh of men and pound their bones to paste, unquote. And to the west, it said, there are shifting, moving sands and empty deserts, red ants, huge as elephants, wasps as big as gourds. In the north, says the helper, the ice rises high. There are wolves and jackals. And then he tells the soul all that awaits its returns. Its return. He tells what makes the world desirable, There are silks and balconies, views of the high mountains, good air, pearls and precious stones, vermilion and a pool with the lotus blossoms. All the beautiful comforts of the world are spoken in order to tempt back the soul of the dying person. For most of us, our journeys are not so large. We travel over the boundaries of suffering, illness, and war because there is no choice. 
Too often there is no one to call us back, to take away illness or to reassemble us. Our bodies are passing through life, following tracks of a different order than our desires and wills. And too, the soul is still sometimes lost today, perhaps in smaller ways even than death. We lose the soul a piece at a time, as when we turn away from what needs our help, remain silent when words are necessary, or take something from the world that can't be replaced, a plant, an animal, a love. Thank you. That was terrific, Linda. Thank you. Four women I really admire. I'm just going to soak that in for a minute. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Mary, for putting this together. And I just want to say, when I got the notice about doing the Maradella Sore, it was really exciting. It was very affirming, and it gave me a chance to really sink into something. And I wrote about something that was going on at the time where I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is that there's a species of swan called trumpeter swans, almost all of which spend the winters in the county I live in and a few counties around it. It was actually a species declared extinct, but there were several thousand of them that somehow had hung on in Alaska, and they did make a comeback, but to maybe 20,000 now. They were hunted to extinction for powder puff material and their feathers for ladies' hats. And they're actually not very good to eat. And at the time, this really strange thing was going on in Washington, in our the counties where the trumpeter swans came, which is that they began obsessively and for no reason anyone has to this date figured out, uh, began eating what's called historical lead. Um, All birds will sometimes consume stones to help them digest, but lead that had been in the ground for hundreds of years, they started eating for no particular reason and dying really fast because of this lead poisoning. So I was kind of putting that together, that very strange, scary thing that was happening when we actually had swan alerts and swan hotlines with Freud's idea of the uncanny, which I really love. And just to make it too simplistic, one of the things Freud identified about what makes something uncanny is that it's feeling the darkness and strangeness in what's familiar. And to me, living in northwest Washington, surrounded by endangered species, many of which scientists really do know are not going to make it. It has this feeling of the uncanny because you're always encountering creatures that are living and dead basically in the same moment. So I'm going to read from that, and if I have time, I brought a really short new piece that to me kind of speaks to this in a certain way, and I may read that, but I may not. Trumpeter swan, and I'm kind of beginning in the middle. Trumpeter swans appear in large flocks, a field of white pillows, A hundred years ago, this would have been a sign of angels or of apocalypse. Trumpeter swans were considered extinct then. Until 1913, a specimen preserved in a museum was the only evidence trumpeter swans had ever been in this area. A few in remote mountains had escaped the massive hunting, and birds began to come back. How strange, like our finding the extinct fish, the coelacanth, Presumed gone for hundreds of millions of years, alive off the coast of Africa in 1938. 
It spooked people, this six-and-a-half-foot splotched, lobe-fin, presumed dead fish, and inspired a B-movie, which is wonderful, by the way, Monster on Campus, where a squirt of coelacanth blood caused the living to revert to primitive stages of evolution. Dogs went wild, humans went australopithecine and loped around the screen and glued on fur. (laughs) Freud had always said he didn't himself have any sense of the uncanny. Obtuse Freud would have been a very poor writer of B-movies. I put Freud with his heavy frames and his whiskers pruned like an obsessive-compulsive's hedge in the scene when those first swans returned to the wets of our dim mining and brothel towns. Massive, white in the way of sun-drained vision, and as far as anyone knew, dead and gone. At the time in Bellingham, people would have been pulling plentiful salmon out of the water, logging, umber cedars bobbing like the fish. Many mines collapsed, and the town would have been fresh with stories of ghosts. The houses built on filled mines as white wingspans the size of a man and a half returned. Perhaps at the time of the swan's return, with fewer extinctions then and those much less noted, the sight of trumpeter swans made no difference beyond the return of a resource. I can imagine we would seem strange, fetishistic to that age, crowding in whale-watching trawlers to chase orcas and whatever, blackening our eyes with binoculars. Do you have the pileated woodpecker, said an old man walking by in the peninsula's temperate rainforest, and are they so rare you never see them? I have felt that old man's almost querulous need, drawing up lists of things I want to see in the wild. Cougars, moose, whales, bears, elk. So meticulous and driven, I could be hunting them. I dragged the family I love along, demanding, much to their irkedness, that they turn their eyes this way, that way. I have seen the pileated woodpecker, a candidate for endangered, out the window of a camping cabin on one of my state's many islands. And I felt that ripple through my chest, that flutter of the uncanny, as the bird poked in a Douglas fir. I saw it, and the sight was both exhilarating and queasy, loaded with the same anxiety not seeing it would have held. We see so much here, the spotted owl, the flipping Chinook. No one in the future is likely to see again. The gray whales spume out in the water. It is there, breathing, One individual behaving as if this week's krill is its biggest problem. I tote my child around to these things. Jin, son, please look. Hundreds of us on shore trying to drive the image up our retina, as if that could be a permanent record of anything. I think I'm going to stop that part of this here and move on to what's newer, because... I think sometimes it's fun to to kind of talk about how a chain of thought um, kind of moves you to another chain of thought as writers. And I just wanted to do something that was a little newer than um, 2008 as well. So I had this challenge of figuring out why this particular new piece seemed to me to work with that older piece on Lazarus species, as they're sometimes called. And this is a memoir piece, and it's probably my earliest sustained, one of my earliest sustained memories, and it's of a homicide, and I thought, actually, you know, we all have these themes in our lives, and one of my unfortunate ones is far too much gun violence in my life and the life of those close to me, 
And I think one of the reasons I really remember this crime is because it was my first experience of homicide. And it happened in Elizabeth, New Jersey in 1966. And it has a cemetery in it. I don't know if any children were ever conceived there. Certainly not impossible. And I think, you know, in terms of the environment, our culture and the things that happen in our lives are their own kind of ecology. So I'm just going to read this, and it's fairly short. The girl, Wendy Sue Wolin, was seven, two years younger than me. She waited at the curb in front of her apartment as her mother pulled the car around. She'd been told to wait there, so she did. Some onlookers reported that she'd been skipping. My brother and I would have run down the street to the candy store or over to the graveyard. There were errands to run, the child young, and it's after school, so she has to be taken along. It's common, a mother in the car with her child, out doing things the child doesn't really understand, though the mother will mutter a list to her. The grocery store, the butcher, the Hallmark store, cards to tell people what a mother may be thinking. The apartment named Pierce Manor. And I'm sorry for this. It's too neat, like the graveyard across the street from my apartment, the Evergreen. My early life fell into me as if it came from a book, not a very good one. If I'd understood meaning and strained coincidence, I would have worked harder to forget the details. Newspapers would call her an Elizabethan girl. Every paper referred to her as skinny. I can see how historically I would have looked, thin, Elizabethan, like a piece of theater. It could be a treat then for a woman to leave the house. Much of what they used came to the women in their apartments. From the milkman, the fuller brush man with his stiff brushes and his soaps, the swan cleaner man with the shirts pinned with little pins to a piece of cardboard. It was my job to undo these shirts, which was difficult, holding all those tiny little pins in my hand without dropping them. My mother took the shirts back with a snick of her lips if I spilled pins on the floor. Some wives used their teeth to hold them and wore pins bristling from their mouths. This was my mother's life, too, but she didn't drive. Nor did she sit with the other wives on the apartment stoops in the evenings, painting fingernails and hollering at children. A quiet woman and very small. But she would brush a hand across the coffee table, lifting dust. She would comb her hair and purse her lips at herself in the mirror. Today is the day for the fuller brush man, she'd tell me. The swan man. Though the same men came for years, she must have known their names. So Wendy stood, stopped in her obedience, a few miles away from me in a warm march in 1966. I might have been sitting in the graveyard then. I sat in there for hours as a child. I loved it. All the stones my size, my reading level, the carvings of bent winged women, though the closeness of the graves terrified me when I tried to sleep. Wendy's mother curving around in her car, a man, white, middle-aged, in a green fedora and a corduroy coat, his arm drawing out towards the girl, and then, a man punched me, she said. He vanished like something the crowd collectively made, unmade. The man had had a hunting knife that cost him $1.50. Police found it later, cleaned. 
It was not a punch. The body can take time to understand. Some women walked Wendy to a fire station across the street. They pulled the girl's coat open, loosed the hid testimony of her blood. She died soon after. It was midday, crowded. Still, the killer melted off and survived with this memory. This one day with its act more focused, more true to intent than any other he has likely known. The simple economical blow, the palmed knife. Jowly, well-dressed, the kind of man I'd have hit up for change later in my life. A generally neat appearance, the wanted poster said. Eyes that looked absent, tired to me like a doctor's. He attacked other girls, stabbed one, punched one, grabbed one, all in one day, failed to kill the others. Soon my town wore his face on telephone poles and trees. Black and white flyers with his bland face in the legend, this man is a child killer under it. My mother walked me to school every day, then grew tired and left me to myself. With my soft abdomen, this need I could feel on the wind. It all I feel now exhausted my parents. There were things to do with the cemetery. An altar boy killed there over a cigarette. We were never, ever supposed to go. But we did, and they couldn't stop us. I have a child. I understand this now. The dangers, the way children cannot be stopped. It was 1966. Thirty years later, police said they'd solved the case. A detail a woman who'd been there at the scene suddenly remembered. She knew its importance, though decades had passed. Newspapers everywhere ran the story, the murder of innocence, the monster caught at last. But just as suddenly the police released the man, dropped all charges. One more randomness to go with corduroy, fedora, and that weary, intelligible face. Thank you. I'm Honor Moore. I'm very happy to be here. I remember being on the earth at the same time as Meridel Lesseur. The name of the essay I'll read from is A Window at Civitella. I would not have written it had it not been for the mad Mary Rockcastle. So I'm very grateful to her. It begins with an epigraph from Lesseur. They never die who have the future in them. A window at Civitella, which is an artist colony in Umbria in Italy. The year is 2010. After two hours of sleep, I wake up and remember I am in Italy and that I have jet lag. I had a cup of espresso at lunch and half a cup of di at dinner. When I accepted coffee at supper, I said yes, and I'm an idiot. But I wanted the taste. It is the middle of the night after my first day, a dozen of us in a castle in Umbria, writers, composers, and visual artists from all over the world, Colombia, Greece, Russia, Thailand, Norway, the United States. As always, I fear I will not be able to do what I have come to do. It is the fear I have lived with since I decided to do this, and whenever it comes, I attach it to a particular situation in my life, love, family, money, body. And then I remember this is what I do, how it begins. 
I am halfway through my 65th year. My parents are dead. I am single and childless. So much is changing. Tonight, I could not remember the name of a monastery city in Russia, Suzdal, guessed Dmitri, the painter from Moscow. Yes, I exclaimed, but I had forgotten the name of a place I had always remembered, one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen. As I tried to retrieve its name, I saw it, white and far away, a square structure with towers, myself walking along the muddy road as a young woman, the man I then lived with at my side. I pulled at its name, but it would not come. White, I finally said, a monastery. Two, every missed opportunity has poignance now. Looking at myself in the mirror close up with the light at a certain angle, I see chasms of age in my face. Human beings are in such denial about the lives of animals, Gabrielle, a young poet from Los Angeles, says. What do you mean? Animals have such short lives. We also deny the brevity of our own lives, I say. I am making a comparison of my face to the chasms of age in a landscape, and I am thinking of an afternoon in the rain in Sicily. It was March a year ago and cold. I was having my picture taken. I had been hired to write a travel piece for a magazine, and a photographer was assigned. It is a cold day, and I don't know who I am as I sit on a curved stone bleacher in an ancient theater, and he looks at me through his camera. What does he see? He is a German man 10 years younger than I am, and in spite of who we are and what our real lives are, we fall in love for a few days. And now we'll have a coffee, he says, and we sit and have cappuccino. I've lost my camera, so it is as if I never sat opposite him there. We woke at five to watch the moon recede and the reflection of sunrise on the pink ruins at Agrigento. I invented another story for those days, the story I had been assigned to write, and so I have not told our story. We fell in love for a few days, and after I got home, we spoke on the phone twice, and then we stopped calling each other, even stopped writing emails. In my life at home, I was alone. His was with another woman and in another language. If I were to write the story, I would begin with our embrace at the car the morning I left. We were alone outside the driver's side, and for the first time, he took me in his arms and pressed me against him. Because the part of me who was in love had already left, it took time to feel his body, to hear his voice break as he said, I don't know what to say, and to feel desire. Then I actually did leave holding in my sense of loss. My sister was with me, and the size of what I felt able to say to her could not accommodate the dimension of what I had felt those days with him, what I was feeling now, what was moving through me, which was another loss. I put my hands on the steering wheel and drove down the winding road from Taramina. Mount Etna, which had been in a shroud of clouds ever since we got here, was still hidden from view. Until now, I have not allowed my imagination to enter those days with him. It was an experiment. Maybe the pain would be less this time. 
And so that landscape remained within me, the green hill behind the cold pink temple, the man with blonde hair who directed me where to stand and sit, myself suddenly a woman so far inside herself she could not be seen, even as something within her begged to be seen, to be seen by him. Three. We are a tribe still, a generation of women now in our 60s, some of us a few years older. We were born at the end of World War II, and as we entered our 20s, we found each other and undertook to change the lives of women. Some of us thought about the lives of our mothers or of women other than ourselves. Others thought about our own lives. I remember hours in a dark apartment on Riverside Drive, in the living room of a narrow house on 15th Street with children running in and out, the tiny living room of a midtown one-bedroom. In these rooms, we spoke as best we could, who we were, how we had grown up, who and how we loved, what we dreamed for our work, what we imagined for women, how all of this might begin to articulate a new politics, a new way of life. We organized to free women from prison, to create daycare centers. We organized against the Vietnam War for the freedom of women to control our bodies. I remember that the women with children spoke as mothers and that the women without children, no matter how old they were, spoke as daughters. They seemed so sure of themselves as I sat there listening, more silent than some of them, fighting the hard truths we articulated. Something was pulling me toward who I have now become, toward a life of writing and solitude. At the time, there were those who considered my ambition self-indulgent. For a long time, I considered the fact that I was financially able to make such a choice a moral defect. Finally, I said out loud that I wanted to write and needed to change my life so I could do that. I said I would speak our truths through my writing, a woman named Jessie questioned me. Did I really intend to write? She made me promise. You can't leave us, she said, unless you really write. It took me four years to publish my first poem. Six. It's Sunday, and outside my window, swallows circle, brushing the thick foliage of the trees, just missing the brick of my turret, aged hundreds of years to the color of honey shot with cream. Beyond the trees is a green field, then a hedgerow, then a vast field marked in parallel lines by a plow. And beyond the field, another hedgerow, and then a mountain green with trees. On its flank, two mowed fields that look like scars. One a third of the way up, the other at what, if the mountain were a man, would be his shoulder. I am listening listening to the Goldberg variations, played with deliberate slowness but also lyricism by a young woman. And even though I have on earphones, I can hear the chatter of birds. The computer clock tells me two hours have passed, and so I go to the kitchen for coffee. As I heat it, Gabrielle comes in. I am going to make iced coffee, she says, hot and cold. She is a poet younger than I, as young as my oldest nephew. Seven. Back at the window, I realize I have not mentioned red roofs and something that looks white 
another roof at the foot of the mountain, or that there is a fly quietly making its way along the mullion of the window in front of my desk. I am grieving the photographer and also my brothers and sisters, the ones who turned against me because of a book I wrote, and I am also grieving the brother who has gone mad. This is what happens when it is quiet and I am not yet writing. What I once believed about the brothers and sisters, that it was all just a misunderstanding that it would dissolve because really we love each other, has not been borne out. I have been forced to accept my difference from them. If I were an actor asked to physicalize this, I would throw myself against a wall again and again until, exhausted, I fell to the floor. There is blood, but they do not see the blood. The photographer had blonde hair to his shoulders, and the brother who has gone mad chops at his own hair. Life remains outside my power, but art, through its mysteries, yields, if not understanding, at least other mysteries, and also help, hope, and also help and hope. Eight. Last night I woke in a pool of sweat. I could see that the sun had not yet risen, and so I pushed the blanket partway off and went back to sleep. By the time the alarm sounded, Bach on my blackberry, I was no longer sweating, and the room was cool. In my dream, I was, 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 was with Kathy on a street in New York that was actually in Italy, and I had forgotten to pay my rent. When I woke up, I was depressed and lonely, and after I walked in circles for a while, there was a knock on the door. Oh, I'm sorry. It was the woman who cleans, a woman from Eritrea, a beautiful young woman. I was just leaving, I lied. I'll wait, she said. I got myself ready to head to the kitchen and forage for breakfast. I found her and told her I had left my room. I was carrying my laptop. She was sweeping. And then I asked her name, Elem, she said, and I told her I was Honor. Do you like it here, she asked. I considered admitting that I was lonely, but thought better of it. She was about to clean the room in Italy, which I had been given for a month of writing. How dare I complain? Yes, it's so beautiful, I managed. And then, barely out of her hearing, I burst into tears and ran right into Gabrielle. Do you have a moment, I asked. Anything, she said. I tried unsuccessfully not to continue weeping. I don't know what it is, I said, and I told her about deciding not to tell Alem I felt lonely. Do you want to walk to town? When I returned to my room to change my shoes, Alem was leaving me some things I had asked for, an extra pillow and a second bath towel. Are you all right, she asked. She had seen me crying after all. Thank you. I want to thank you for staying. When your last name starts with Y, you get to go last a lot. <laughs> and yesterday, I went last on the panel, and I decided to throw my paper out, and instead I sort of made everyone stand up and did an art revival. <laughs> so, um, I'm trying to resist that temptation now. <laughs> Lasserre, for me, has always meant something huge in this way, and that is I never wanted to be rich, 
and I never wanted to be famous in terms of being a writer. I wanted to hold the question of what is the labor of making art open and keep asking it my whole life. Like when you make art, if you're not doing it to be rich and you're not doing it to be famous, why are you doing it? And I think that's a question worth holding open for yourself rather than succumbing to an answer that's easy. So I'm really tired because that's the question of my life. <laughs> I never answer it. So I'm going to read the second half of an essay. I'll just tell you about the first half. I'll shorthand it. The opening of the essay starts out, when my daughter died in the belly world of me, I became a writer, which is true. The day my daughter was born, she also died and in an effort not to go insane, I became a writer. And so the first part of the essay tells a little bit of a story about that. And it's about the kind of labor that came from grief, which I bet everyone in the room has some experience with. And it also carries a little bit of a micro story within it, which is one day my evil aunt sent me a box my father was an abusive prick, and yet he also taught me to love art. So I have a lot of these experiences in my life where somebody bad gave me something good. And so my evil aunt, who's my father the prick's sister, <laughs> sent me a box out of the blue one day, and for a week I didn't open the box. This is what's in the essay, so trust me, this is a faster version. And I opened the box after about a week. I kind of wanted to burn the box because fuck them. <laughs> it's evil family. But I opened the box, and inside the box were many, many photographs, black and white photographs of my Lithuanian heritage and family. And I'd lived my whole life up until that point, never really finding anyone in crowds who looks like this, this giant jaw and shoulders and little beady blue eyes. <laughs> I, I never felt like my kin were in the room till I opened this box and looked at the photos. And they were so Eastern European. <laughs> I mean, you know, they looked like they were born with plow hands, <laughs> potato diggers. And also in the box was a series of articles about a relative of mine who had been one of my uncle's and he'd been arrested and sent to a Siberian prison because he took a bunch of photos of an illegal massacre at a hospital. And Russians came and found him and took all his camera and stuff and put him in a gulag for 17 years. And he got out after 17 years. He came home to my aunt who waited and waited and waited and loved and loved and loved him and had hidden all the photos and kept them. And he died a week later. Because life is awesome. <laughs> the first part of the essay is that. Okay, you got it? <laughs> and the second half of the essay is about a woman who still haunts me, who's a friend I have who's almost 80 now. And she's a Lithuanian painter. And I've never been able to perfectly capture in words what her paintings are. I've so not been able to capture it that I ended up writing a whole novel about it that's coming out in July. You should buy it. It's called The Small Backs of Children. 
but to me it's it's a failure of language that's beautiful that I can't capture what's in her paintings. It's a beautiful failure. It's my homage to her that I can't speak it. So halfway through, <laughs> I know a woman named Manus who's a painter in Lithuania. Though she travels to Vilnius monthly for food, to perhaps see an old friend or for supplies, she lives in a rural area with very few people. But there are many trees and many streams and many animals, so she's not alone. When I say Manus is a painter, you may wonder, well, where does she show her work? Where can I see her? What gallery? Have you seen her paintings? Is she on the internet? Can we friend her on Facebook? Can we click like? Will somebody make a tweet? <laughs> but when I ask Manus about painting, she laughs and says, painting is the labor of dream. There isn't anything wrong with her English. Manus lives alone on a falling apart farm. In the past, the farm was a Soviet Russia work farm, and in the present, the farm simply houses her as both she and the buildings do what women's bodies do, move away from children and family and scripted desires as the aches and pains and changes in bending and blood and bone toughen and wrinkle flesh and hair like wood and weeds. Her paintings live in a barn that was used in the past for horses and cows and chickens and goats and machinery, and they rest stacked against one another in a great monument to her dream labor, but haphazardly, nothing like an American painter's studio, more like history gone from the order of power to the chaos of ordinary wildflowers and rodents. The paintings smell like hay and dirt and wood more than turpentine and linseed oil. Sometimes the dirt and refuse, perhaps even rodent or insect shit, probably gets into the paintings. I know I've seen spiders caught there, mid-crawl, becoming art, history. To speak to you about art in America, I have to bend language. Because to speak to you in art in America terms about Manus seems stupid or worse, like a grave injustice. I can only speak to you about bodies. The body of her work is not an oeuvre. <laughs> it is not the end product or output of her artistic production that you can put a monetary value on and catalog. Her work is her body. When I stand in front of one of her larger works, say six by 10, I feel inside river. Inside rocks rumbling under the soles of my feet, the ice of the water traveling up the bones in my shins to my ribs and shoulders and skull. Or I feel moved by the wind and leaves and my body raising its hair and flesh toward the sky, and before I know it, I see that I've extended both of my arms out to the side of my body and close my eyes and rock my head back as if to say, yes, in the painting. Or I feel turned literally by the colors of fall leaves and that moment before the deep hues of gold and red and brown and purple decreate into winter's dead detritus. In these paintings, I don't feel out here up against the painting. I feel the painting is in my body. 
So when people ask me about Manus, I say, I know a woman artist in Lithuania who fed her children on dirt and roots and potatoes and weeds and the milk from a cow and a goat and rainwater for years. And still they grew. I say she loved her husband so much she carved his name on her own belly with a knife and the pulp of wild raspberries turned it into a tattoo. There's no story of this woman, of what happened to her, or how she came to be a painter or an artist. There's no news that carries her name. I can't point to something that will show you how important her work is. If a painter is a painter, are they always a painter? If a painter has no gallery or critic to write her name, is she still a painter? Is a painter a painter if no one will ever know how art came alive in her hands, how painting day after day in labor no one ever saw was hers? Why should anyone give a shit how grief birthed her art? What is a work of art? Do we toil differently, me with my domestic and capitalistic trials and tribulations, and Manus with her chickens laying eggs, or the ones that try to lay eggs but hatch deformed things, Chernobyl in her past? something you can hold in the palm of your hand, her farm gone to seed, her family like a supernova flash. Manus trades me paintings for stories. She tells me in a letter, many thanks for your stories. They keep me. I am alive of them. There's nothing wrong with her English. Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians were rural people for centuries, their largest cities inhabited by other ethnic groups. The lyrics of their folk songs ring and rise with forests and mushrooms and animals and azure shimmering lakes, but I don't think you've heard them. Most Americans don't know how to picture the city dwellers in Vilnius, stuffed as they are with their big boned and thick muscled bodies in concrete apartments as the heat turns them into ovens in the summer and cold cells in the winter and yet they're laughing and happy together as families. Manus tells me about saunas, this new invention. Saunas? <laughs> a Lithuanian sauna is a mixture of Russian traditions and a kind of Finnish comfort. The bathhouses are usually two-story wooden houses with a sauna cabin on the first floor, rooms on the second, and a pond to jump in right after the sweat. Manus tells me how to fill a day with fishing in lakes so cold and blue you can see the underworld of water life, how to ride horses across land knuckled with rounded hills and through birch and pine forests. And in the evenings, over this new thing called email, Manus tells me over and over again how her entire family was blown to bits, husband, son, daughter, in front of her eyes while she held a basket of kindling for the fire, her hair blowing back away from her face and the skin around her eyes and mouth pinching with heat. And each time she tells it to me, it's the first time. Mena says, ah, well, I became painter to live. But I think maybe it's simpler, her becoming... I think it's a choice to face not staying alive with expression and labor and body. She's out there right now making new forms without any of us. Trauma brought me to the page. 
Years ago, when Manus learned that my daughter had died in the belly of me, she said, Ah, then you are down at the bottom of the water now. It's good. See? You can walk the deep. That is why you hear. Can you see me? Possibly the most perfect sentences anyone anywhere has ever said to me. She is beautiful and terrible all at once. And I'm looking at a photo of her painting right now, and it's black and blue and as big as the wall of a house. Maybe it's the bottom of the water. Maybe it's Manus's lost family in there, floating or walking the depths. And maybe too many beautiful dead daughters are down there with her, like mine. I must remember to push on the sentences until they break open and reveal our otherness to each other. I must remember to be a body that generates new ways of seeing and saying, that's the labor of art. A woman's body and labor without apology. This language held by the white. My daughter's name was Lily. Thanks. We have quite a few present and former members of our Waterstone Review editorial board here. And one of the things we talk about uh, with the different editors, whether it's fiction, poetry, or creative nonfiction, is when, when you go through all the elements of the craft and you put your litmus test up, does it do this? 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 And so all of those things have been met the beauty of the writing, the structure, the form, the voice, etc. And then in the end we say, so what? What is it really about and does it matter? And of course that's a subjective question and answer because matter to whom? Well, how many of you does it matter to? And one of the beautiful things about this essay is that every single essay has been beautifully written because we ask really fine writers to write them. And in the end, when we get them, that so what question just kind of sings, because they are about material that really matters, wide-ranging material that's distinctive and original to each of the writers, but that really matters. And so I want to say thank you for your work and you see what the Maradella Soar spirit has created in Waterstone Review. I am going to open this up for questions, but I realized when I was sitting there that I never said who I was. And so thank you to Honor Moore for saying the Mad Mary Rockcastle, which I will now, you know, put on my tombstone, you know, and, and can be buried with it as long as it, my vacuum cleaner is with me, which is what my children say has to go with me. I am Mary Rockcastle, and I'm the founding editor of Waterstone Review, and just must say how much pleasure and a feeling of gratitude I feel and the other editors feel when we get these essays, and that although it comes across as something that you read with your eyes as a piece of text, by the time it's done and we've held it and felt it and edited it, it is an object that it feels like has gone sifting through our hands because we have loved and looked at and treasured every word. So if you have any questions about the essay to the individual writers, 
Now's your time. Yes. So the question, um, if I can, you know, hopefully honor it in paraphrase, is when you're writing about grief and trauma, how do you do that in a way that's honest but that also can take care of yourself? So you get the experience on the page, but at the same time you have to um, cushion the writer against the blows that, that you're putting on the page. So I will open that up to... You mean cushion the reader or the writer? I think... Both. Oh, the writer. Well, all I can say is that I almost always go to that horribly frightened place when I begin to write. And somehow what happens in the process of writing is it becomes other than me, and it returns to kind of embrace me and hold me safe. Um, because it, well, this is what I've learned over years of having some readers and also getting fast readers by giving readings, um, is that, is that, just that, that I am protected by it. I think it's really important for everybody in any art form to remember that um, when you're telling your story, it isn't very important to sit down and explain what happened to you. What you have is the entire landscape of artistic forms to draw from. Images, metaphors, similes, the whole practice of making art will help you cushion yourself from just saying this terrible thing happened. But I also agree that every single time you sit down to write one of the difficult pieces, you're going to go through a crucible, physically and emotionally, literally. And... So ask yourself the question, is this what I want? Because there's no way around it. I mean, I'm at the point where I can write about butterflies and it's a crucible. (laughs) Depends on what kind. (laughs) True enough. Some Some are safe and some aren't. I don't think there's anything wrong with being raw and hurting and being a human being. So I don't see that I don't feel the fear that she was speaking about, and I do think that grief is a part of art because it's everything that's human is a part of your writing, and so you think about the world outside of yourself, and the writing doesn't come from you; it takes you somewhere. It's your leader, and so you follow it, not your own inner self. Um, I'm, I'm writing about grief, and I'm writing about my, um, my granddaughter that was just killed three months ago by a pack of feral dogs on the reservation. And, uh, you know, we all went through family grief and uh, wakes in Rapid City and, and Pine Ridge. And there was a lot of grief and a lot of other things that came up because anger, all kinds of things. She was eight years old, and so I'm trying to write a book, but it's her voice speaking, and it is her. I mean, I was in, I could hear her, and I started working on the road. We were on our way to the reservation, to the funeral home, um, and all of a sudden, I knew it was, I was supposed to do that, because 
I was typing into my computer, and all my pages started flipping all at once. And then the last one was a picture of her waving. And, you know, I just looked at that picture of her waving, and it was like not, I didn't know if it was goodbye or hello. So I knew that that's what had to be written. So she's talking, and she talks history of the people. She talks the land the way it was. She talks all the whole world through her voice. And I think that's what you just did, you know, talking about even the baby at the bottom of the ice, in the sing life in the bottom in the ice. I mean, death and life are combined. And so grief, you cannot protect yourself from pain. Don't even bother trying. It's just part of everything. And, you know, there's also the beauty And so thank God we have memory. Thank God we have a future. Thank God that some of the people that are gone show us the future. Like, the, you know, this is about Maradell in a way. I mean, this panel, too, it has her name on it, I think. Doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, and you know, people did go to the graveyard to have love affairs when they were, you know, teenagers. And... I mean, she never protected herself from history, from grief, from anything. She had to protect other people. I don't think we can top that. So as Maradella Source said, a writer must go all the way with full belief into the darkness. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.